Right, well, if you would turn again to 1 Corinthians 13, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 13 throughout the first part of this year, and so you could say that the whole year has been a, a workup to Valentine's Day in a sense, as we celebrate love, because this is the greatest chapter in the Bible, at least considered by many to be the greatest chapter in the Bible on love, because it talks about what Christian love is, what divine love is. Not just human love, but truly Christian love. And so I'd like to read for us again verses thir- uh, excuse me, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. In the first three verses, he talks about how essential it is when he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. Last week we began talking about love is kind in verse 4, began focusing on that and highlighted the fact that the basic thing that God calls us to is to trust in love and that love can be summarized as patience and kindness and that patience provides the platform for kindness because if you're not patient with someone, you just kind of walk away and cancel them. But if you're patient with them, you hang in there, and that provides the opportunity for kindness, to do good to those who may or may not do good to you. And the basis for all of it is the fact that God is kind. God is patient and kind. Uh, God reveals himself to Moses by saying, um, as actually repeated by Jonah, I actually have this quote in the notes where he says, God says to Jonah, Frustrated with him because he did not destroy the Ninevites, he said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, which is what patience is, and abundant in loving kindness, which is what kindness is, as Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, and one who relents concerning calamity. In Romans 2, Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his, meaning God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 
And so the God that, that exists, the God that is, the God that we worship, is a God who is love, and that love is preeminently patient and kind with people who don't deserve that patience or that kindness. What I'd like to do is basically apply what we've talked about so far with regard to patience and kindness to relationships, and especially marriage relationships, but really all relationships, because patience and kindness apply to every relationship. But often on Valentine's Day, we think about more romantic relationships and marriage, and so I'll look at it from that perspective. But I'm not going to try and say everything about relationships or everything about marriage, but I want us to think about how patience and kindness, especially as God defines it, applies to all relationships and applies to marriage. But if you're not married, apply it to your friends, apply it to your parents, apply it to others in your life, those relationships, because patience and kindness and the implications of it apply in every relationship. And so the first thing that I just want to do is to uh, start by saying that we have to remember something that's very, very important And that is that the best things in life are often the hardest. The best things in life are often the hardest. Now, it's natural for us to associate easy and comfortable with best and good, and hard and uncomfortable with bad and worst. And yet in the Bible, that's not the way it works so many times. And even if we think about it, As we think in terms of marriage and other relationships, we often talk about how wonderful it is, but we also talk about how hard it can be as well. Uh, Someone said, there's only one thing harder than living alone, and that is to live with another person. Um, We joke about things like this. Someone said, you know, marriage is when you agree to live in a room that's too warm for you beside another person who says it's too cold. That's what marriage is. You agree to live with a person who's very different from you. Or someone else has said there are two kinds of people at parties, those who want to stay until the bitter end and those who want to leave early. And they're usually married to each other. That's <laughs> the way it works. And then there was a, a, a conference for pastors and their wives, and this one young um, pastor's wife uh, got up and was just talking about her husband, and she said, you know, uh, the Bible says... Bible promises, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those that walk uprightly. She said, well, my husband is one of those no good things. You can take that one of two ways, right? And depending on the day that you talk to anybody in marriage, it will be one or the other. It'll be one of two ways to take that no good thing reference. So my point is, we acknowledge that there are wonderful things about relationships like marriage, and they're also very hard things. I prayed for those who are about to have babies. Uh, one of our favorite shows, especially Jan, uh, is called The Midwife. It's a show about women giving birth to babies. And um, the, the book that that, was, uh, that show is based on, uh, the writer of it said this, there must be an inbuilt built system of total forgetfulness in a woman some chemical or hormone that immediately enters the memory part of the brain after delivery, so that there is absolutely no recall of the agony that has gone before. If this were not so, no woman would ever have a second baby. 
Now, I know that experience varies from person to person, but she was speaking as a midwife who saw a lot of really difficult births, and yet people still had babies. People still did that sort of thing. And the Bible highlights the fact that in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But from the very beginning, it's a mixture of wonder and amazement and blessing and pain. Because the Bible also says in Proverbs 17, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So, so which is it? Are children a reward and a blessing? Or can they also be a grief and a bitterness? Yeah, you know, parenting can be a very difficult thing for many, many people in many situations. And it's the same way with marriage. It says in Proverbs 18, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. In Ruth 3, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, uh, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that you may that it may be well with you? Speaking of, I need to get you a husband for your good, for your blessing, for your security, that it might go well with you, so that both for men and women, marriage is a good thing. And yet the Bible also says in Proverbs 21, it is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. And it says in Genesis 3, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is not a model for marriage, as someone has said. That is God's judgment on the man and the woman because of the fall, which means marriage is going to be hard, because what is that talking about? Well, someone has said, when sin has the upper hand in the woman, she will desire to overpower or subdue or exploit the man. When sin has the upper hand in man, he will respond in like manner and use his strength to subdue her. It's talking about a conflict. It's talking about the man ruling over in an unkind, unloving way. So the Bible talks about the fact that marriage can be a tremendous blessing, but it can also be very, very difficult in ways, depending on where we are and what sin manifests itself in our lives. The last illustration of how the best of relationships can be both wonderful and hard is actually following Christ. It's the greatest blessing of all is to be reconciled to God through Jesus and to be a follower of Christ. And Jesus explained it this way, pictured it this way in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then in another place he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Cross is an instrument of death. It's an instrument of suffering. Jesus says, Come to me and I'll give you rest. He also says, Take up your cross and be prepared to suffer and die. Peter actually brings that out in 1 Peter 4 when he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Uh, you're sharing the sufferings of Christ. He says, uh, It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And he quotes a verse where it says, If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man 
and the sinner. So Jesus says, in one sense, salvation and walking with him is easy. In another sense, it's very, very difficult. There's suffering involved. It's wonderful and it's hard. And so the best of relationships, the best of gifts in life, are also very, very hard in various ways. Just because something is hard doesn't mean it's bad. We need to remember that because we all have hard days. We all have hard times in various relationships, friendships, parent-child relationships, marriage relationships, whatever. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, the best relationships will have aspects that are very difficult, but that's not something that should cause us to want to run away from it. And that relates especially to the idea of patience, which we've been talking a lot about. The second point I want to make in terms of application and thinking about patience and kindness in relationships, especially in marriage, don't focus on your spouse, but focus on God. Um, we're, We're focused on something in our relationships. And the question is, in our marriage, are we embracing the idea that if I just look deeply into the eyes of my spouse and we just keep our eyes on each other, everything will be wonderful, which is the kind of the movie version of how to stay in love in marriage. When the picture in the Bible is actually a man and a woman standing side by side and looking at God, that's the picture that we find in the scripture. Um, it doesn't mean we should ignore our spouse. It's interesting, the eighth president, Martin Van Buren, uh, had an autobiography uh, written, and he never once mentioned his wife in the autobiography. We should not ignore our wives. So that's one ditch. The other ditch is we're not to make an idol out of our wives or our husbands. Um, there was a, a son and a fiancé that went with the son's parents to see uh, th- this priest to talk about some preparations for the wedding. And um, they were answering some questions that they had been given. And the son read one of the questions that said, Are you entering this marriage at your own will? And the young man looked over at his fiancé and she said, Put down yes. Idolatry is when I am looking to the other person to basically guide my life, to supply my needs, to satisfy my heart. I am looking to the other person, and the Bible says that that's called idolatry, and that you can't love people if you idolize them. You can't love them if you ignore them either, but you can't love them if you give them too much inappropriate attention. Someone has said, uh, he wrote a book called Drinking Salt Water, which is about um, trying to get your satisfaction out of your spouse or your friends or other people. He said, drinking salt water means turning a gift from God into a God little g. It means looking for salvation in something that was never meant to save us. It means deifying something we were merely supposed to enjoy. It means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. It means worshiping something that was never meant to be worshipped. 
drinking salt water is what the Bible calls idolatry. And so on the one hand, I'm not to ignore my spouse. On the other hand, I'm not to idolize my spouse either. But what I am also to be careful of doing in seeking not to ignore or to idolize is I have to be careful of simply reacting to my spouse. I am called not to react to my spouse, which means kind of I kind of play off what they do. If they're kind to me, I'm kind to them. If they're not kind to me, I'm not kind to them. I'm not to react to them. I am to reflect the heart of God. Many of you may have seen the movie Fireproof. In that movie, there's a discussion between the father and his son, who's married to, obviously, his wife, and they're having conflict. And he's beginning to apply this um, love-dare approach where he's doing nice things for his wife, and she's not responding very well. She's not affirming him, and it's not working. And so the young man is very frustrated, and he's expressing his frustration to his dad, saying she doesn't... um, honor me. She doesn't respond rightly to me. She's so ungrateful. I've been washing dishes. I've been bringing her flowers. I've been cooking dinner. I've been doing all this stuff to try to communicate that I really care about our relationship. And she throws away the flowers and she won't eat the dinner and all this sort of thing. And so he's just incredibly frustrated. And he says, I did everything I could do to demonstrate that I care about her, to to show value for her. And she spat in my face. She does not deserve this, dad. How am I supposed to show love to somebody over and over and over and over who constantly rejects me? And obviously, that's when the dad, who's a believer, uh, points to a cross that he has and says, you know, how do you love someone who constantly rejects you? That's exactly what God has done and is doing to you. He's loving you, though you still reject him. And the only way you can love someone who isn't everything they should be is if you embrace the love that has been shown you in Christ. And he goes on to say to his son, you can't love her because you can't give her what you don't have. I couldn't truly love your mother until I understood what love truly was. It's not because I get some reward out of it. I've now made a decision to love your mother whether whether she deserves it or not. Son, God loves you even though you don't deserve it. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Obviously, another very famous passage on love and both love in general as well as um, the love of a husband and wife. It includes love of um, others as it goes on to chapter 6. But if you look at the very end of chapter 4, verse um, 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, and and offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's the point is, we're not to react to people, we're to reflect the love of God to people. We're to consider how God has loved us and then reflect that love back to whether it's our spouse or our friend or our parent or our child or whoever it may be. If you go on and look down in in chapter 5 at verse 22 and following this where it talks about husbands and wives, I just want to simply point out how often reference is made to the Lord or to Christ. 
And so in verse 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. If you think about how often the Lord and Christ is being spoken of there, and if you hear what Paul is saying when he says, this mystery is great, he says, I'm not talking primarily about marriage, I'm talking primarily about what marriage is meant to picture, the relationship between Christ and the church. So how do you have a good marriage? You have to be committed to picturing what marriage is truly about. If marriage is truly about Christ and the church, then we have to respectively, in light of our roles, as it says here, seek to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. If we want a good marriage, because that's what the church is, the, excuse me, marriage is meant to picture. Christ's love for his people and his people's love for him. And so that's why we have to keep our eyes on God, on Christ, if we're going to truly be the kind of spouse God calls us to be. We have to look to God for our help and our happiness and our example as we seek to love our spouse or love anyone else in our lives. We seek to imitate him and please him regardless of their response or lack of it. Now, the best uh, marriage advice you could ever receive, I would argue, is simply what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 at the very beginning of his description of love. Be patient and be kind. You could say it's a kind of bottom line. Now, a bottom line doesn't say everything that needs to be said. It doesn't include everything that you need to talk about and need to do. But it's kind of like laying the foundation of the house and framing the house. It provides the foundation and the framework for everything else. Patience and kindness, the kind that God talks about here. Um, it's like the newlyweds that were married and they, the, the girl calls home at some point, talks to her mom and to her dad, says, we've had this big fight, I want to come home. And after getting off the phone, the dad was asked, what did you tell her? I said, you're already home, which means you shouldn't go anywhere. You're right where you need to be. Don't run away from the conflict. That's what patience is. It stays in the relationship. It just doesn't walk away and run away, either physically or emotionally. We don't have to leave someplace to basically walk away. We can walk away in our heart. We can shut down and harden our hearts and just walk away. And patience calls us 
to not do that, not to retaliate and not to walk away. Uh, you've heard the story before about the woman who was married for 50 years and someone asked her, how did you and your husband stay together so long? And she said, on my wedding day, I made a list of 10 things. I determined to make a list of 10 things about my husband that I didn't like that I would overlook. And someone said, well, could you tell me what you put on that list? And she said, no, I determined to do that, but I never got around to doing it. So every time my husband did something that made me hopping mad, I said to myself, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that that was on that list, which means I'm going to continue loving this person, even though I, I don't like everything that they're doing, don't agree with everything that they're doing, so that patience and, and kindness go together. Patience is long-suffering. That implies that in order to be patient, you have to be willing to suffer. And the kindness that God calls us to is kindness to those who are often ungrateful and often far from being what they're called to be. In fact, that's why you could see how the disciples responded in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees come to them, come to Jesus and say, you know, um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And, and Jesus says, don't you know that when God brought Adam and Eve together, they were to be together forever? That was God's intent. And they say, well, how come Moses gave a certificate of divorce? And Jesus responded, because of your hardness of heart, he did that. He said, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And it's interesting what the disciples said in light of that. They said, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. You mean... I can't get out of the marriage if I don't like something about it? You mean if there's something that really bothers me that I have to stay in that relationship and and try to work it out? Maybe you should never get married. And Jesus actually goes on to say, it's God's design for most people to get married, not everybody. And so the only reasonable recourse you have is to look to the God who created marriage and who actually put you together with that person for the grace you need to stay in it, to not retaliate, and to do them good, whether they do you good or not. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, um, speaking of this love and marriage, they can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other, as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. They can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love, which is what Paul is talking about, this quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it, but it's not what continues it love of God. It's the love of God in Christ. It's patience and kindness that is the engine that keeps marriage going. That's the idea in Luke 6 when Jesus says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. He's saying you don't need any special grace, any grace from God to love like people normally love, which is you love me, I'll love you. You do what I want, then I'll 
I'll give you something back. You don't give me anything, I don't give you anything. That's the way it normally works. And Jesus says, I call you to something very, very different. I call you to a a Christian love, a Christ-like love that is truly what it's all about. And so we have to ask ourselves in our marriages and in our other relationships, am I committed to patient love? Am I committed committed to kind love as God defines it here? Well, let me talk a little bit about a couple more things. In light of being committed to a kind love and a patient love, practically what does that mean? It means pursue your duties, not your deserves. I'm making up a word there, I guess, in some sense, but let me define for you what that means. Your duty is what you ought to do, according to God, to love someone. Your deserve, or your deserves, are what you think other people ought to do to you or for you, right or wrong, whether God tells them to or not. So the question is, am I focused on what other people, my spouse, my friends, my child, my parent, what they're supposed to be doing for me, what I deserve, either rightly or wrongly, or am I focused on what I'm supposed to be doing to love them? And the problem in marriage is often that we're focused on our deserves and not our duties. And we don't realize that focusing on our deserves is kind of like what um, this man experienced when he went to northern Siberia uh, to do some research. And young ladies from that area came to his door and he would open his door and they would throw dead lice at him. And obviously he was kind of repulsed by that. But in their minds, they were declaring their interest, their romantic interest in him. Many times in marriage, we throw dead lice at our spouses, thinking that we're doing what we need to do so that they'll love us, pursuing our deserve so that they'll love us, and we actually drive them away. When I demand that my spouse or other people in my life life love me a certain way, it's like throwing lights at them and driving them away. On the other hand, if I focus on my duties, it can make a big, big difference. It's interesting, <clears throat> there was a woman who uh, went to a counselor one time and said, I want a divorce, I want to get rid of my husband, but I don't just want to get rid of my husband, I want to hurt my husband because he's hurt me deeply. And you may recall this, you may have heard this before. He said, well, I've got a plan for you, the counselor did. I want you to go home, and I want you to act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him, make him believe you love him. Then after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. She said, that's great. That's exactly what I'll do. So she went home, and for months she did that, and finally the counselor called her and said, well, are you ready to get your divorce now? And she said, are you kidding? I love this man. No, I don't want a divorce. So what's going on there? There's another um, counselor who says to troubled um, marriage partners, he says, I've got a plan, I've got a prescription that I think if you'll follow... um, 
this will make a huge difference in your marriage. And it's this. I want you to do 10 things each day that you would do if you really were in love. I know that if people do loving things, he said, it will not be long before they experience the feelings that are often identified as being in love. Love is not those feelings. Love is what one wills to do to make the other person happy and fulfilled. Often we don't realize that what a person does influences what he feels. And the counselor said, you won't believe how often that prescription has resulted in them coming closer together. And the idea is, even if one person says, I'm not going to focus on my deserves, I'm going to focus on my duties. I'm going to focus on what God calls me to do to love this person, to do them good, whether they do me good or not. And I'm going to pray that God would use it to transform my marriage. If you think about what it says in Colossians, it it talks to husbands and it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. What does that mean? Love your wives and don't let the fact that they're not everything you want them to be keep you from doing so. Don't, don't, don't let their failure to be everything you want them to be or their offenses against you to keep you from loving them. It's the same way for wives. Uh, submit, be subject to your husbands as unto the Lord, not as unto, not as unto your husband because he's great and wonderful and perfect, but as unto the Lord who's great and wonderful and perfect. Someone has asked the question, how do husbands change their wives? And the answer biblically is, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Which means love someone who doesn't love you back as they should. That's, that's the way you change your wife. You give yourself to being what God calls you to be. That's the way it works. You notice in these passages on marriage, Paul and the other writers never say, now if you're, 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 let's say, your husband doesn't love you like Christ, let me tell you what to do. This is how you really get him to do what he's supposed to do. Nor does he say, um, you know, husbands, if your wife doesn't submit to you like she should, then let, let me tell you how to get her to do that. He doesn't say that. But the implication is, if you do what God calls you to do, that can radically transform your marriage. It may or may not, depending on the situation, but that's truly the implication very clearly in First Peter chapter 3, if you recall, where it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. He goes on to say, The holy women of the past who hoped in God adorned themselves in this way, being submissive to their own husbands. He says, If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear, you will truly be the kind of wives and children of God that God wants you to be. And the implication is God might very well win your husband over if you simply do what God calls you to do. God might actually win your wife over if you simply do what God calls you to do. In that passage, it says that you might do what is right without any fear. What's the fear in that passage? For the wife, it's the fear that I have an ungodly husband or a husband that's not committed to loving me, therefore I'm in trouble. I may not have the happiness and the provision and protection that I need. God says, no, I'm your protector and your provider. You just love that man like God, like I call you to. Same way for a husband. Um, We might fear that if I don't 
do what I'm supposed to do in certain ways, then therefore my wife is going to do this, that, or the other thing and make things worse. Well, God does want you to do something, but it's not to try to control your wife. It's to love her like Christ loves the church. <clears throat> so again, um, someone has asked the question, what are the means by which a godly woman can hope to change her husband? She is to win him by the attractiveness of her godly life. As she trusts the Lord, ceases from trying to seize control, and treats her husband with grace, she is holding before him the very gospel that has the power to change him. Let me just wrap up with this last point very briefly. Neglect the means of grace. This is very closely tied to um, where our hope is in terms of whether or not pursuing our duties makes a difference or not. Our hope isn't in ourselves. Our hope isn't even in doing what we're supposed to do. Our hope is to be in God. And therefore, to neglect the means of grace, we neglect our marriage. You probably have seen the movie War Room. It's about a couple that's having marital conflict. And the wife meets an older woman. And they begin talking about the marital conflict in this younger lady's uh, life and uh, the younger lady, lady Elizabeth says, "If there is one thing we do well, speaking of her and her husband, it's fight." And the older woman says, "Just because you argue a lot doesn't mean you fight well." And then she takes the younger woman upstairs and shows her a room, which is actually a large closet, walk-in closet, and she says, "The older woman says, this is where I do my fighting." And the younger woman walks in and sees uh, papers all over the wall that are actually written out prayers for different people in her life. And so the younger woman says, so you pray? You have prayers written out for every area of your life? And she says, yes, I do. It's a prayer strategy. And she, the older woman begins to talk about her own marriage and the difficulties of it. And she said, God showed me that it wasn't my job to do the heavy lifting and that I needed to look to God. And so the younger woman says, you know, this is great. This is wonderful for you. And you probably have plenty of time to do this, to this, but I don't really have time to give to prayer and things like that. And the older woman says, but apparently you have time to fight losing battles with your husband. Which means we make time for what's really important and what really needs to be done. The older lady says, when I fought against my husband, I was fighting against my own marriage and my family. And she said, I, I couldn't fix him. I didn't get anywhere with my husband. The younger woman said, well, you know, I sure haven't got anywhere with Tony, my husband, either. And the older woman said, because it's not your job. Who said it was your responsibility to fix Tony? It's your job to love him, respect him, and to pray for the man. Elizabeth, you've got to plead with God so that he can do what only he can do. And then you've got to get out of the way and let him do it. You need to do your fighting in prayer. You need to take off the gloves and fight for your marriage. There's plenty of fighting that goes on in marriage of the wrong kind. Where we're trying to fix each other, we're retaliating against each other, but there's not enough fighting that goes on in marriage of the right kind. Where we're going to God and we're praying for our spouse and we're praying for our own hearts. We're praying that God would deal with our wrong attitudes and we're looking to the word of God so that we can see the God that we're supposed to trust and imitate in our marriage. 
And so we have to give priority to the means of grace, the word of God and prayer and fellowship with other believers so that we can actually encounter God as we need to and find grace from God so that we can actually love our spouse and see God change our spouse in the process. My number one relationship, my number one focus has to be on God. The Bible says the greatest commandment of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. We think, well, if I just you know, work on loving my spouse and my neighbor, maybe I'll work up to loving God. It works the other way. If we give our attention to loving God, and then we're enabled to love our neighbor, our spouse, our friends, our children, our parents, and everyone else. Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is patience and kindness. God is the only one that can change hearts, only one that can change relationships, only one that can change marriages, only one that can change me and you. But that's a hopeful thing. That's a wonderful thing to know that it's not my job to go around fixing everybody. It's my job to look to God to help me and to make me happy and to enable me to do what I need to do and to show me how to love people. So let me just close by asking us some questions. Have you embraced with joy the hardness of your good gifts? Have you embraced with joy the hardness of your good gifts? Is your focus and hope on God for your help and happiness or on your spouse or other people? Are you committed to being patient and kind? Are you resisting retaliating and walking away from your marriage and other relationships, either emotionally or physically? And are you committed to doing what is good for your spouse and others no matter what? Are you pursuing your duties or your deserves? Are you most concerned about whether you are loving your spouse and others as God calls you to? Or are you more concerned about whether they are loving you? Are you neglecting the good of your marriage and other relationships because you are neglecting God by neglecting the means of grace? Are you praying for your spouse and for others? Are you feeding your faith so you can love? Have you turned from sin to God and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because that's the starting point of any true loving. And what will you do with what you've heard today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hopefulness of what we find in your word. We thank you for the encouragement that you are a God who's incredibly and infinitely patient and kind and loving, and you show that love to us every day. And you call us to love like that in all of our relationships, not only in marriage, but in parenting with our children and with our friends and every relationship, even in the body of Christ. We pray, Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, whatever relationships we have, we pray that we would hear you say that we need to embrace the hard things about those relationships, that we need to look to you and not to others for what we need and desire, that we need to be committed to being patient and kind that we need to focus on our duties and not 
what we think we deserve and that we need to cultivate our relationship with you that we might find the grace to love like only you can love. We do pray that you'd radically change our relationships, that you'd radically change our marriages and our parent-child relationships and our friendships and our other relationships. But Father, whether you radically change them or not, we pray that we would be committed to being radically changed ourselves, to be more like Christ by your grace. We pray that you'd help us and may we believe, may we know and believe the love which you have for us. And may we rest in that, rejoice in that, and seek to reflect that to everyone else in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.